we have the expectation that these spaces are supposed to be doing things for us. Mm. And the reality is we are our own placemakers. Yep. So it's not about what you should take out of it, but what you yeah. also put into it. On that note, don't ask what the queer community or black zones or the, the LGBTQ community can do for you. Ask what you can do for the community. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got to be back for the dead. JFK. No, I'm kidding. Um, KFK. Yes. Um, it's a good drag name. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Soft Spoken, a podcast. I am your host, Marfine Chan, and this is the 13th episode. Despite the number, it's not an unlucky time on this podcast. You know, channeling my inner Taylor Swift here, 13th is a lucky number because we have a very lucky guest with us today, my friend, Dr. Theo Green, an associate professor of sociology at Bowdoin College here in Brunswick, Maine, although I'm not actually physically in Brunswick, so I don't know why I said that. But uh, my friend Theo is a fellow patron of uh, the one of the few remaining um, gay bars here in Portland, Maine, uh, Blackstones, although actually there's a few new gay bars, so I shouldn't say that anymore. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, him and I have struck up a friendship over the past several years, and we, we talk a lot about community, we talk a lot about neighborhoods and gayborhoods, and he'll explain what that means in a little bit, but you are in for a treat because I think that a lot of us are really starving for community and are, are making mistakes and, and seeing joys and ups and downs and, and pitfalls and, and all the things that come with human interaction now that we are all emerging from the pandemic. And so uh, give this podcast a listen, share it with your friends, um, this episode in particular with Dr. Theo Green. I hope you enjoy. I'll see you on the other side. Hello, everyone. Welcome to my interview with my friend Theo Green, who is a Portland resident. And I believe, Theo, you just moved to the West End, correct? That's correct. Not to disclose where you live to, to the <laughs> podcast <laughs> listeners, but, uh, you know, my uh, follower levels is very Portland scale. So I think we're safe for the time being. <laughs> uh, people know where I live, though. Um, so you're a, a, a local public figure um, and, and increasingly uh, a, a main public figure because you uh, show up on, on main calling. Like we've talked about, you are on the boards of a number of organizations, including the Equality Community Center. And you are writing a book titled Not in My Neighborhood, Gay Neighborhoods and the Rise of the Vicarious Citizen. And I'm sure you will talk a lot about that. And so uh, before we start, for listeners that like that don't know you as much as I do, or um, folks that might not see you out doing karaoke and, and <laughs> gallivanting around um, our big neighborhood here, uh, give us a little introduction of, of of you, where you grew up, your uh, education, your your background, um, and and what you do for work. Yeah, so I'll start with what I do for work. Um, Right now, it's not much of anything. I'm on sabbatical this year, but I um, am an associate professor of sociology at Bowdoin College. Um, there, I teach courses um, in urban sociology. I study cities, um, sexuality, masculinity, men and masculinities, um, as well as um, public sociology. Um, what does it mean to take the work that we do and go out into the social world? Um, it's a really interesting story in terms of how I got there because I think that lends itself to my biography. Um, I never thought I was going to be a sociologist, let alone study cities. When people often ask me in graduate school what I what my subfield was, um, I said anything but urban sociology, and now I'm an urban sociologist. Um, but I grew up in Los Angeles, California. Um, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so when people ask me where, um, I always joke about how growing up in the 92 riots, I could be able to sit on my front porch and watch people moving from one place to another in, in terms of the, the looting and the violence. Um, but um, I have lived um, 
you know, I left LA when I was 18. I did my undergraduate in Washington, DC. I went to Georgetown where I majored in English and history. Um, took some time off and worked at Georgetown um, in the summer housing office before I went to graduate school um, in Chicago or in the Chicago area. Um, I got my PhD at Northwestern in 2015 and moved here um, that same year to start my job at Boat, and I've been there for eight years now. Um, and it's been a very wild ride. I love teaching at Bowdoin, but um, you know, living in Portland has been quite a set of growing pains moving from all these big cities to um, a place I don't call a city. It's 66,000 people. It's not a city make. But um, And I will say, <laughs> you're on sabbatical, but you got tenure recently. I did get tenure. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm, that's, that's good, too. I guess there's something in the air saying that I need to stay here for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not too shabby of a place once you figure out its quirks and its... It's a very charming town. I think, you know, what's interesting and it's it's ironic because usually when I go on sabbatical, I go somewhere and do research. My first sabbatical, I, I was in D.C. to finish um, the book, um, Not in My Gaperhood. And the second project that I'm working on is about queer placemaking in Portland. Um, and so, you know, it has intrigued me enough to um, want to do a research project on it. Um, and I'm very excited about it, too. It's It's... You know, since moving here, thinking about all the growing pains um, that a place like Portland is, is is experiencing with gentrification, with the housing the way it is, with the various kinds of problems that also emerge, and yet you still have these very sort of um, what we refer to as gemeinschaft lit ties, right? It feels like in many ways a village. You walk up and down the street and you see people you know. Um, and one of the questions I'm actually wrestling with with the second book is whether or not city, the notion of a city is a stable concept because, you know, as Portland becomes this tourist attraction in the summertime and it garners millions of people, the way in which we communicate and relate to each other is very different during those times than it is in the summer. It feels Mm -hmm. more city-like here. You feel more anonymous to a certain extent in the summer. Um, And then throughout the rest of the year, right, you can go into your favorite coffee shops or your favorite stores and people know who you are and they say hello or... um, what I hear more and more when people find out the teacher boat and they ask, like, I think I've heard you on Main Calling or I think I've, I've seen you do this. Or um, it's it's very interesting, <laughs> mm. <laughs> to say the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you like a sense of anonymity um, or mystery? Uh, <laughs> I don't think I do. I think what the anonymity g- – is a result of in some fashion is is the diversity and the size of a place, right? So it's nice to go to a place like Chicago or D.C. or Los Angeles or New York and you get to meet different kinds of people and you get to meet new people, Um, especially when you're trying to date, right? Mm. (laughs) Being single here is very, very hard, especially when you are, um, you know, someone who is engaged in the community as much as you are, right? Mm. Um, It is... Um, very challenging when you know everybody and everybody knows you and they know us you in a certain context. They don't know you um, as a fully fleshed out human being. They know you as someone, you know, I'm a professor and I, I'm someone that apparently carries myself a certain kind of way. Mm, and that, mm-hmm. and that results in how I think people relate. And so the anonymity is in some ways is good because I think it, it, it opens up and invites exploration. It invites people to sort of get to know you in a very different way than mm. I think um, sometimes being in the community kind of can pigeonhole a person. I miss that. Yeah. And and we talked briefly about, and, and this is what reminded me, I need to have Theo back on, on well, I, it was a different podcast back then, but um, this one has been quite on quite a roll. Um, you you told me you you just gotten tenure, and um, we both had a conversation about, you know, how people of color, as people of color and men of color, um, we, we achieve certain things, but there's sort of this sort of like, okay, now what, like, do I settle? Um, what does this actually mean? Mm-hmm. And, and then the expectations from other people that come from that. And so granted, um, I think we were both a few drinks in, but uh, <laughs> I think that's the gist of that conversation that, that I remember. And that was just a, a, such a very, it, it hit close to home to me because when people say, oh, you, you know, you're a published author now. How do you feel? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you felt after you got tenure. Um, that's a good question. I actually mentioned this on Main Calling when we t- when he did a recent episode on joy and what it means. Um, 
I, you know, I've worked hard for tenure for a long time. You think about graduate school. I was in graduate school for nine years um, to get the book together. And, um, you know, I'm an ethnographer. So that means I'm kind of immersed in the communities that I'm, that I'm researching. And I, and I, you know, get lots of data by observing and watching and interviewing and that sort of thing. Um, and this, the, the time I was at Bowdoin, right, especially given the pandemic that kind of pushed back the clock a little bit and had to do a lot of the recalibration. Um, so it was a lot of hard work to get to this particular place. And once I got it, you know, once I found out, everyone else was so excited. They were so like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, congratulations. And I kind of felt a little empty. <laughs> um, there's something, there was something, you know, you work so hard for something and it's supposed to, people say it's supposed to kick in and make you feel a certain kind of way. And I'm still waiting for it to kick in, to be honest. Mm. You know, I still had to continue teaching. I still had to get the book done. I still thought of a million other things I needed to do, even though it's a huge milestone. I know what it is, right? Um, even on July 1st, when my title officially changed, still hasn't hit. Got business cards, still hasn't hit. Mm. Um, I think going back to that conversation, there's two strands of it, I think, that's really interesting. One of which is, you know, what is it about being people of color that when we accomplish these things, it's both, you know, seen as something extraordinary, but at the same time, it's it's a cause for people to be intimidated at mm. the same, at the same, on the same mm. token, especially in the, especially in a lot of the white spaces we encounter, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's there's something, you know, people often are surprised, right? That that I have gotten a PhD and I've, I've been educated in some of the best schools and I teach at Bowdoin. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the word I get, right, people always say, you're so smart, you're so smart. And, you know, I think about, you know, Barack Obama, President Obama, when he was first coming onto the scene, how everyone sort of said the same things about him and the ways in which that kind of veers in, in a way kind of dog whistly, um, as if it's not normal or expected mm. um, for people, especially people like us that are um, motivated and involved. And I think, you know, our biographies shape that motivation and involvement in the community yeah. to the extent that yeah. we have um, to be, um, to, to, to want to aspire to more than what the typical stereotypes around people like us are supposed mm. to be and who we're supposed to do. And I think that's been very, very frustrating on the one hand. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and, and that frustration, I'll be honest, is what kind of fuels me to keep going, right? Like, you know, I used to um, be, I, I was often pushed by people who said I couldn't do something. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, if you think I can't, I'll show you that I can. Um, and that has led, I mean, that's been something I've been doing my entire life. You know, um, when I was in debate and I became, you know, I, I worked to become state champion and I, you know, I was state champion twice. I went to nationals twice. I was the first mm. person at my school to do that. Um, you know, coming out in Georgetown and thinking about um, all of the experiences I had being a person of color and experiencing racial animus for the first time, um, going to places where people say, you know, um, you're, you're a really great guy, but it's a shame that you weren't white. Um, the, the ways in which people, um, when they did want to engage me, so, found me as competition in spaces, okay. right, as opposed to, um, you know, try to do a one-upmanship, that sort of thing, um, which often fueled my research, right? That pushed me to to go to graduate school and do the work I'm doing now. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so I think you you touched on it. Um, you said surprise that people are surprised, and I think you uh, toward the end of of the last uh, uh, phrase or, or or paragraph, whatever you want to call it, um, the word threatened came up, and. And, and a few things um, that came up for me in, in listening to you was um, we we live in this fake, and then this is related to the uh, affirmative action case that just came back. We live in this fake world is like that meritocracy is this equalizer. And then when you work into our positions um, or, or our identities as queer men of color, our, our notions of um, or the way or, or how masculinity is, uh, it, it fucks with us. Mm-hmm. I don't know a better word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, people expect us to, on the one hand, behave in the stereotypical queer men of color way, uh, which is very different than queer white men of color. And then they expect us to also, if we want to advance, to mute those 
and be masculine in, 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 in professional spaces. And so there's a bunch of like intersecting um, headwinds that really causes our ships to uh, almost be uh, handicapped and, and stuck at, at sea. Um, and so um, I'm wondering um, your thoughts are, do you see how masculinity, meritocracy, um, especially has affected us as queer men of color in prof- a professional setting? Oh, um, absolutely. I think, and this is something that, you know, we are kind of breaking away from, I think, more and more as we think about, like, how the role of Black Lives Matter and, you know, thinking about what Black joy is or queer joy is and these other kinds of questions that I was also exploring on my episode and main calling recently. Um you know, I think there is enormous, enormous pressure when we were growing up, right, that that success had to be, success was coded as white, right? Success, I mean, you know, we grew up watching shows like The Cosby Show, right, that kind of had this sort of colorblind um, sort of world, right, where, again, you know, they had a lot of different friends. Um, race was rarely talked about. Um, that was the, the milieu that I grew up in. That was the environment I grew up in. Um, and yet... You know, I was always enamored. I loved, like, Claire Huxtable, right? You know, that was someone who I often admired in terms of the character. Um, but more and more as I got older, like, I used to love, I realized how much I also loved the first Vivian Banks from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? The, the superior one um, to the second one. I'm going to admit that. Um, you know, the, the way in which she could be both a very dignified professor and then when she had to be street, she could be street, right? She could be ghetto and, and, and she could take off the earrings and, and she can dance to or sing Tina Turner or, or, or to the Temptations. Um, we're often sort of put in these positions where we have to mute the characteristics of our identities in order to survive and yet they become a liability, right? We often can experience that kind of glass ceiling to a certain extent. Um, and I, I experienced that for the first time when I went to college, right? You know, my high school was a predominantly white high school in L.A. And one of the things that always struck me was that I was going to school with a lot of wealthy white kids. Mm. And class never came into the discussion. Race never came to the, rarely came into the discussion. I mean, that was probably after the OJ trial, right? That was the, those kinds of natural divisions that emerged. But there were never those moments where anyone made me feel different or made me feel... Um, you know, like a problem, as Du Bois would call it, um, and so as a black folk, um, because I was black and I was I grew up in South LA. If you didn't like me, you didn't like me because I was, you know, good at what I did, and I was and and I was a force of nature. Mm. Um, then to move to places like then go to places like Georgetown on the East Coast and live in the East Coast or, or move to Chicago, right? Where again, race becomes coded in a very different way. Um, and understanding was I'd be a liability. So I, I sit in classrooms in my English classes and the only time people wanted my opinion or wanted my analysis was when we we're talking about black novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I can totally give you pr- my perspective about Toni Morrison or James Baldwin, but you know, I also loved reading all the other books as well. Um, and so now I think, you know, I've grown up for such a long time sort of learning what it means to be successful. Um, that, I have lost a lot of myself, I feel, right? And, it, and it's taken a long time to, to relearn that. And that's the beautiful thing about becoming an academic these days. You know, you know, at, at Bowdoin, I'm still one of a handful of black faculty and even smaller percentage of black faculty members who've, who have tenure. Um, and I had to learn how to do it my own way. Like one of the things about being an academic that's interesting is that no one's career is exactly the same. Everyone has their own trajectory because everyone's doing their own research. I mean, we're, we are big on social reproduction, but I could not be, you know, I don't think I could have survived as I, the way I have if I did not embrace my, my blackness, if I did mm. not embrace the queerness, if I did not um, utilize those in white spaces to be able to... Um, to be able to be heard in a room, mm. right? So, you know, I always talk about, you know, we always develop these kinds of mechanisms, right, in the white spaces when, when we feel we're being silent for some reason, right? Sometimes it's the angry person. Sometimes it's louder than others. Sometimes it's, you know, whatever. I use sass, right? I use, you know, I disarm them with laughter or say something like really, really like witty, and then all of a sudden people laugh, and then, and then it just sort of opens up their guard and yeah. lets them do whatever they want to do. Um, and so... I think, yes, there's a lot of pressure for people to sort of perform a certain kind of way. And I think that's, you know, becoming completely unmoored, right? I think, to paraphrase James Baldwin, it took me a lifetime, right, to 
to, um, you know, discard what people what people told me about myself, right? Mm-hmm. To realize I belong to to, to to walk in this world as a full fleshed human being. I think there's something, you know, I'm learning in my 40s about that, right? That's been a par- process of a very long journey. I, I love that you're you're looping in James Baldwin because I because you've seen that I've been rereading Giovanni's room. Yeah, and it's just so different reading it from the perspective I am now, having opened up to uh, living um, in my full body. Um, probably most recently because um, politics, publicity, authorship, um, really drove a lot of how I presented myself and then and after becoming a published author and, and sort of holding elected office I was like okay this is underwhelming like what am I missing I, I'm missing life mm-hmm. like I haven't said yes to life um, and I've said yes to accomplishment or sorry no achievement accomplishment I forget the, there's a difference between the two um, but they're both right like yeah. y- you have accomplished a lot and mm-hmm. and you also have been honored for that, yep. right? Same here, right? Yep. And it's great. It's a great feeling. Um, but at the same time, you know, where is the fun, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like I think that's the one thing that a lot of people in marginalized positions when they go into these spaces sort of, you know, don't get to do. We have to be, there's a pressure for us to actually perform better, right? Mm-hmm. And perhaps even more proper than, you know, our white counterparts that can have moments of fun and moments of play, and what does it mean to recapture those things? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, my re- my revenge is now studying queer nightlife. You know, I go to, you know, I get paid to go to pride parades and go to, you know, bars and go to, um, you know, my third book is going to be about queer tourist towns. I'm very excited about that. I get to go to, you know, going to Provincetown Provincetown. and all these other places. Um, but at the same time, you know, where is the sense? I mean, I can find play in work, but. You know, for a long time, I've, I, I haven't been able to take the moment and chill, to relax. Um, one of the things I was trying to do on sabbatical this, this year is develop chill, right? To be able yeah. to take more time for myself, to do more things that are self-care. I have a stack of novels that I've been wanting to read um, ever since I started um, teaching at Bowdoin. And I want to read all of them, right? I, we have a beautiful place with a lovely little deck. I'm going to sit on that deck um, and read some gay-themed novels, right? I, have a little drink. Yeah, have a little cocktail. I was even thinking about starting, a, like, a reading group, like, just of some of the gay books that I've I've been stumbling on and yeah. trying to read. Um, finding, you know, going out, taking the mailboat and, and, you know, going on the mailboats or going yeah. to Peaks Island for a weekend or um, even taking trips. Everyone keeps asking me, like, what do you want to do? And for the first time, I actually said, you know, I kind of want to do nothing. Like, mm. I kind of want to have the experience of not having to wake up and feeling the pressure that something has to be done. Yep. That I have to get up and teach, or I have to get up and go to an interview, or I have to get yep. up and, you know, now I'm working on the, you know, stuff for the book, the production parts, like the cover, the indexing, which yeah. is going to be a pain in the ass um, to do, but I'm kind of looking forward to it. Um, you know, starting the new project. And it's like, there's plenty of time, like a whole year. But I also need to figure out how to interweave now these other mo- these other aspects of myself too, and I think hopefully it's starting to show. Everyone keeps saying I'm, I'm much lighter and more relaxed than I <laughs> normally appear. <laughs> um, you know, not to say that I haven't always been like a good, nice person and haven't laughed, but but I think there is a palpable difference, right, where I don't necessarily feel the weight of having to be attend to my family, having yeah. to deal with the, the pressures of work, having to be a part of these organizations, whether it's, you know, the ECC or Friend of Peabody or um, the American Sociological Association, which I'll be chair of the sexuality section next year, having, we're going to start a journal and that sort of thing. And there's so many different things that, that we're constantly doing. And I think the pressure that I think, especially us being queer men of color that are, that are trying to make a difference and be present for other people and to a certain extent, I, I probably think you might agree with this. Be the kind of leader that we wish we had when we were growing up, mm-hmm. right? When we were coming into our own, where we didn't see the images of ourselves. You talk about Giovanni's room. And one of the things that always vexed me when I first read it, I was looking for looking to someone that looked like me that could talk about my experience. And then I realized that the characters were white. 
Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to realize that he had to do that for a very particular reason, right? Because he's actually thinking thematically about the kind of humanity of loneliness, right? And and the, the shared experience of heartbreak and the shared experience of, of pain, right, that transcends. And so he had to make the characters in order for it to also be a gay love story mm-hmm. as normal as possible, as normal, right? And mm-hmm. we put in quotation marks. Um, you know, and he did it while he was in Paris, where he had the freedom to write that kind of a book. He could not do that in the United States. Um, and again, the writing he did in the United States, the things he was saying in the United States were, were palpably different, right? He had yeah. to activate in a different way. And so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, we do that and we do it well. And it's, you know, I, I love having students, young men of color, that, that, you know, remind me of who I was and I can be able to stop <laughs> and tell them to, you know, give them advice that I wish I had, yeah. lessons I've learned. But I also, you know, want to have fun too. I want to go out and do more and explore more and relax more. And and hopefully this year I'll be able to do those things. Yeah, so that brings us to the human being, the person behind the tenure, behind the book, behind the... Um, behind the uh, 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 radio show voice uh, that they may hear. Uh, give us a window into the things that do bring you joy in the sense that you you realize you're living and you're being out there and, and that the moments where you realize, oh, life is not a bucket list. Mm. Sleep. <laughs> I don't get no sleep. It's so important. It is important. Yeah. But, you know, I, I have to admit, you know, there are moments um, – where I wake up and I just recently moved to a new place and my bedroom has a beautiful view of the water, right? Um, And the breeze comes in, it's a warm breeze, but like I'm surrounded by these fans and just I'm waking up and you know, there's a, the breeze is flowing and I'm just like looking outside and it's a beautiful day and the sky is blue. And sometimes it's like, that's really, it it feels lovely, right? It feels like I'm relaxed, right? I feel comfortable and at peace. Um, I love bodies of water. I love being on, on a boat, right? And being able to, or going to a beach. You know, just by being, or seeing or being close to body water, water lowers your heart rate. Apparently. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, going back to what I was previously saying, it's sad to say that that's relaxation is what, you know, makes me feel alive, right? In In a certain fashion. Um, I would like to speak since, I would like more experiences where I also feel that kind of rush of, you know, adrenaline or excitation, right? Um, you know, going hiking is something fun to do. And I like, um, you know, being able to go to the top of a, you know, pre- of, of a mountain or something and be able to look over and seeing all the, the beauty that's there. Um, what are the other things that probably make me feel, you know, a lot? That's... Again, that's something I'm trying to discover more about myself, mm. you know. Um, I think people often think that, like, we live these wonderful lives because we're doing all these different, different interesting things. But, you know, for me, uh, you know, so I still see the the work of it all, right? Like, my sociological mind is always moving and working. And what does it mean to turn that off sometimes, right? Yeah. I love to cook. I, I, you know, go in the kitchen sometimes. I like to make food and, and feed people, right, um, you know. I, I, what do you like to cook? Oh, um, well, here are lots of Mexican food. I grew up in Los Angeles. My mother um, and her best friend um, um, taught me how to make all this, you know, me- you know, really great authentic Mexican food when I was growing up. And coming to the East Coast, particularly living in Maine, there's not a decent Mexican restaurant around here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I agree. I have to say that. Um, I mean, people try very hard. Um, but to think about how it was all watered down, I have a very funny story. I was just thinking about this in terms of. Um, well, one quick thing. Yeah. It's now at least corn tortillas that's popular and not flour tortillas. Very, very true. It's very important. Yes. And, and I make I make my own <laughs> now, which is fun. Um, but no, I was thinking about like, you know, there's a restaurant on Peaks Island that has a, a um, wonderful um, event on Sundays called Reggae Fest, and they served mm. jerk chicken. Um, and I tried it, and I was kind of like, um, 
this isn't jerk chicken. Uh, you're missing the most important ingredient, right? Which was the the, the pepper, right? Um, you know, not to things- call them out, but which restaurant? <laughs> um, Jones Landing, but okay. Um, um, it's a wonderful restaurant. It, it's you know, I have a number of friends that work there. The food is really good. Um, their ribs are good. Their, their clam chowder is also really amazing. Um, Let's go there. We should. Um, one of the things I was I was saying though, I was explaining to someone you know, at Blackstone's one evening, right, the importance of the pepper, right? They were sort of explaining that, you know, they had to to be mindful of the the, the people um, that go here, right, that may not be used to the spice. But I said, you know, jerk chicken has a a fascinating history. You think about Jamaica, right, as a slave outpost. It's part of the, you know, British Empire. You had lots of different influences coming in, right, Um, that, you know, that's why there's soy sauce in it, right, because the Chinese, you know, Chinese workers were coming to Mm. Jamaica. You have all of these kind of curried spices, right, and then you have the scotch bonnet pepper, which is native of Africa. You take away, you, you, you get rid of one of those ingredients, you take away, especially the scotch bonnet pepper, you take away the one thing that makes it black, for lack mm, of a better term, mm-hmm. right? And again, Jamaicans took all these things together and made this beautiful dish. Um, and so after explaining it to them, they fixed the recipe. <laughs> and they joke now, and, and it now is, it is jerk chicken, right? It's not like a curry chicken, right? It's, it, it, is very, it is very tasty. Yep. And they were like, yeah, we did it because you, you complained about it. And I was like, oh, well, that's lovely, right? Um, that was something that, you know, kind of one of those surprising things you learn about being, you know, quote, unquote, public figure. Here. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things... I, I do love food. Food is something that also, I think also makes me feel like human a lot. I like trying different things. I like trying, you know, I like my mouth to have a party in it, right? Um, and so, you know, being able to learn about food and talk about food and think about the history of it, it's it's, it's just exciting, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I think it's probably one of the good things about being in Maine sometimes, but, um, you know, where we, um, you know, it has this reputation as a foodie place, but at the same time, um, what it also means when the food is kind of bland. Yeah. I hate to yeah. say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's why I was so glad to see so many Jamaican restaurants open up, mm-hmm. owned by Jamaicans, um, uh, Jamaican Mainers. Uh, yard eating soul food? Mm-hmm. Although I didn't see it at the mall anymore. Do they have their own spot? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's something that, that's something else I want to try more of. I mean, I think, so bad to go for me now talking about Portland, I think it's given me a really good opportunity to actually explore the dimensions of Portland that I've kind of resisted for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I will admit, um, being in denial that I lived here for quite a, a bit of time when I first moved here, um, and, and friends knew that I could not stand living here um, mm. for lots of reasons. And it's grown on me um, in the past eight years that I've lived here. Um, and I'm developing a different appreciation for it than I did when I first got here. And yeah. I think that shows, too. Um, I'm not bitter about being here and being stuck here, despite the fact that I really loved my job and that's what drives me to stay, right? Um, Bowdoin is a fantastic place to work and the students are amazing and my great colleagues. Um, But now it's also a good opportunity for me to sort of think about, like, if I'm here, how do I make this a home, right? And how do I make this a a home in my own way? Um, on my own terms, not necessarily the experience that everyone else th- thinks is great about Portland, but what I like about Portland, um, which um, I'm still discovering, and that's kind of exciting in its own way. Um, so that brings us to the, the 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 topic that you probably spent a lot of time thinking about day and night in your sleep, neighborhoods but neighborhoods as well, mm-hmm. vicarious citizenship. Mm-hmm. And and I want to go back to a little bit of what you were talking about in, in Georgetown um, when when you were talking about your time in D.C. and facing the, the racial animus there, mm-hmm. um, but also discovering that D.C., it's, you know, huge swaths of it um, were diverse. I don't know how diverse they are currently because of the gentrification, all that type mm-hmm. of stuff, but... Um, how was a neighborhood important for you to discover on the East Coast in, in a setting like Georgetown, making your way up in academia? How did a place like D.C. or, or neighborhoods um, in, in, in other areas that you've been kind of helped you uh, uh, pull out sort of the, the queer man of color to start living that out and discovering that? 
Yeah. I, I always joke with people that my research was motivated by my inability to find a date, <laughs> find someone to date. Um, you know, I think that struggle is real. Again, being per- people of color often in the spaces we often occupy are, are traditionally are predominantly white spaces. Um, and I knew I wanted to study about that, to better understand the experiences of people of color, queer people of color. Um, and again, I never thought I was going to study cities. And until when I was in graduate school, um, there was a um, there was tensions. I think we talked about this in previous podcasts, but tensions between um, a gay bar opening across the street from a black church in a historic black neighborhood. Right, that was kind of revealing how gentrification was taking place um, in historically black neighborhoods. Right, where white residents are coming in and gay white residents in particular, and they're using black culture and black history to preserve those spaces. Right, and and to help raise the values of those homes, but then they're also pushing out the very people that, that they're engaged in that that, that they're trying to preserve. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 the tension kind of reached a fevered pitch to a point where, um, you know, a lot of the churches were um, protesting this bar opening. And the, way, the reason why the bar, you know, the, the efforts with the church failed was because the residents, the per- people that were fighting against it, they were identifying themselves as part of the community, were not living there anymore. Um, so that led me to sort of think about gay neighborhoods and gay neighborhood change from that perspective. And I thought initially when I wrote my dissertation that it was really a question about, um, you know, gay neighborhoods themselves. But then the more I dug in, I began to realize that, you know, segregation resulted in, um, you know, black people not accessing the white spaces of the gay neighborhoods in the 20th century. What did they do? They created their own spaces, right? They created their own vibrant queer communities mm-hmm. in their own neighborhoods, right? They were in, they were invisible in plain sight. They could, you know, they were, you know, they threw parties. They went to straight establishments. Um, they were able to create their own traditions, their own nightclubs, right? Not in response to white racial animus, but because they wanted to celebrate community. It was not a deficit at all. Um, and so as you're seeing more and more like queer people of color mobilizing in these spaces, right, white spaces or, or you know, white queer spaces because of the, exp- the experiences of, of um, discrimination um, that they still encounter in these spaces, um, but they're mobilizing and they're, and they're protesting and they're protesting in their own way, right? They're, they're doing dance-ins on streets and they're standing on street corners and they're doing all sorts of cool things. I really wanted to illuminate those experiences too, mm. right? So the framework for the first book um, not only thinks about white DC, right, um, white queer DC, but it's thinking about you know the experiences of Black queer people as well. And again, the dynamics you saw we saw in places like Dupont Circle, you saw in Shaw, right, in the Black community, in the Black LGBT community, um, they did the exact same things. They were parallel worlds, um, and I, and and that is what really excites me about the research, right? To think about again. That the, you know, that the, there are a lot of different expressions, a lot of different communities that are that are doing their own thing, and it do, and queerness doesn't look have to look like um, the ways in which we've seen them presented, um, whether it is the way in which we see them on dating apps or whether we see them in traditional clubs or places like here, like Blackstones. Um, you know, there's lots of different expressions of queer life that I, and queer culture that I want to illuminate, and yeah. and in doing that, right, I think it emboldens me more to appreciate the fact that, you know, I'm not, you know, lacking. There's nothing wrong with me because I can't, I can't, you know, find success in the sexual fields that exist in places like Blackstones or in places like some of the white traditional gay neighborhoods, right? That's not, you know, I'm perfectly wonderful human being (laughs) doing my own thing, right? And, it gave me a greater appreciation of all those things. So, um, without spoiling your book or your second book, um, and and um, without uh, putting people in our our neighborhood on notice, what's your assessment? Is that the right word? Um, what What's your review? No, that's not the right word. <laughs> what is your What are your thoughts? In reflections, that's much better, on the the gay community in Portland. Mm. Um, so, so far I've done about eight years of research here. Um, 
ethnographic work. I think the community here is far more diverse than we give it credit for. And I think a lot of people spend and invest a lot of time trying to distinguish themselves from other people. And, it, and despite the fact that they're just like everybody else, right? The th interesting thing about Blackstones is it's the only LGBT bar. There's so many people that talk so much trash about that place, about the people. And I get it. Like, you know, there's certain nights where people, you know, it used to be, I mean, it's kind of older, it's kind of divier, you know, it has a lot of different, you know, kinds of people. Sometimes you have a lot of old guard people who um, will be a little handsy. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of great stories about, you know, the early days where people would go up to the bathroom and get peed on. That's perfectly wonderful and fine. Um, you know, but it's also you know, a really interesting place in a microcosm of a lot of different kinds of people that go in there. Mm. If you're trying to go in there trying to find somebody to, to go home with, you probably will be disappointed. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because, again, it's a community bar. It's a community space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and when the community rallies together, it's actually a really beautiful thing, mm. right? Like going there on Pride after the parade and seeing all the different kinds of people mingling together. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I do there that I, that, that I, I have developed reputation for is playing the music, mm. right? And one of the reasons why... Which I love. Thank you. One of the reasons why I do and people enjoy it is because I recognize that it's a multi-generational space. So I can go to Cardi B, then back to Donna Summer, then to Whitney, then to, you know, then to Aretha. See, and that works for me as a Gemini. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, to have variety. Yeah. I think that's why I feel when, when you're playing the music, like, I am... Fl flitting i'm using that word too much recently but like i'm able to uh appease sort of the different eras that i'm i embody and what's great about it too it's it's also a history lesson of, of our music mm -hmm. right of, of of what queer people were listening to and dancing to right and you know queer that's what, history through music yes right like, is that like, gonna be a book it should be <laughs> um if it's not already i think what's great about it is you know, we don't have the ability to often transmit our history, right? And we've lost a generation of people who lived that life because of the AIDS crisis. Um, and again, a lot of the people that are AIDS, like are getting older, you know, are people, especially here, are people that missed, you know, like what it was like to live in Stonewall, right? Or experience Stonewall, right? I, I did a you know, um, Equality Maine Youth Camp, and we had a project where they were looking at the Stonewall riots from different perspectives, and they had the elders come in um, to sort of talk about their experiences with the Stonewall riots, and they didn't have it, and they didn't know a lot about what was going on. Well, again, the reason for that was it wasn't a big story here. If you lived here in the 1960s, you lived in New England in the 1960s, um, you know, even in New York, right, there were very small blurbs, right, about rioting happening in New York City, right? The Village Voice probably, you know, had extensive coverage about the riots over the course of the four nights. No one else really did, right? And it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we don't have a definitive story about Stonewall. Mm. You can, depending on who you ask, there's different stories about how it started. Um and so I think, you know, playing the music there, right, gives an opportunity to connect the different generations of people, right? The older people who come in now want to, want to listen to Dua Lipa, and the younger people want to come in now listening to, you know, YMCA, you know, by the Village People, or, or Rolls Royce, right, Car Wash. And so, again, that kind of really interesting transmission of, like, knowledge and history and shared experiences from these different groups of people is a beautiful thing. Um, and we don't lean into it as much as we should. I think more and more people, I, you know, there is... Is a lot of community drama. It is a small space, um, and again, but but you can also develop an appreciation for the people in the community that are there. Mm. Um, and once I discovered that too, I had to go through that journey myself. I ha now have a lot more fun. I now um, can experience um, talking to different kinds of people, understanding where they're coming from, getting a sense of their you know their own experiences, and that has illuminated my appreciation for living in a place like Portland. And it really has motivated um, what the second book is. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about doing is a companion sort of virtual walking tour of every mm. queer place that ever existed in Portland. Oh, yes. And thinking about this in terms of time, right? Because one of the things that I study is this question of, you know, space is stable, right? Like the physical, you know, bounded geography of this room, for example, right, isn't going anywhere. But depending on the people that are in this space, they they, they, they transform it into place. Yeah. They give meaning. And place is not necessarily stable. It can change, yeah. right? 
Blackstones, um, changes over the course of the evening, depending on those that are playing pool and happy hour, the old mm-hmm. card, versus those that are coming in later at night to listen to music or, or dance. Um, it, 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 it transforms in different ways. When it's a drag, yeah. when it's a drag night, right, and there's drag performances. Karaoke night. Karaoke night, right, um, shariaoke. Um, uh, yes, all those different things that happen, right? And it is such a dynamic place. Um, yeah. That if, again, like, if you give it the opportunity to just go in and lean in into mm. that more, um, it could be much more fun experience. Yeah. As opposed to, I mean, now, now that said, there's a lot of really great ephemeral placemaking happening through the yeah. city, right? Queers and Beers and Girl the Queer Bar and, you know, the, a lot of the drag performers, you know, curbside queens, right? They're now doing yeah. their thing back and forth. Um, but again, the, the, the notion that they're also being an anchor for the community, right, um, is, is also very valuable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can have all of these things exist simultaneously um, without feeling that one is better or worse than yeah. the other. Yeah. And I think queer people of color had to learn that lesson in a lot of spaces for a long, long time. Again, I often get questions when I first come here and I was often so disappointed. My friends like, why do you keep going back? Well, because this is still my community. Right? Yeah. I still have a, I still feel a connection to it in some fashion, and I want to be in a space where my identity as a queer person is centered and central, right? And I, I think I mentioned earlier, like, I took a break of going there as much as I've been in the, in the past month since Pride, or two months. And I think that's what I realized during Pride was, like, I'm missing my own community, um, you know, just because something bad happened a year ago that wanted me to distance from Blackstone's you know, it's you're still cutting yourself off from a lot of things, and and to your story about the the book that you're you're gonna work on about the queer places that in, in Portland, and the importance of Black Zones as an anchor, um, totally on a whim. Last karaoke, um, uh, a lesbian woman came in. She was visiting. She was she had helped her mom move. She lives out on the West Coast, and she sat down. As a gay man, I didn't have to talk to her, but um, you know, I struck up a conversation like, "Hey, what's going on?" And um, um, what what brings you to Blackstones? And she was like, "Oh, it's an old stomping ground of mine." And and she looked around. There's a lot more women here, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah." Um, especially on karaoke night, yeah, I think I feel I see more um women and queer women come out. And she she mentioned uh. You know what's that? I when I, when I lived here, there used to be this old bar, um, um, queer bar that I went to, and and I was like, hold on a second, let's take a walk. So mm-hmm. I took her to the bath near the bathrooms, um, and I showed her, look at all these signs of all these old places, and she just starts looking at it, and then she noticed one that um, she didn't mention, but she said, oh, I remember that one. I remember this moment in time, and I was just like, wow, like. This is actually pretty cool that they have all these signs here. Like I, I knew they were there, but to see someone who um, hadn't been there in quite a while, to see her, her history, her queer history in Portland mm-hmm. um, represented. That's what you, you when you mentioned your book. That's what or, or the possible book. That's what it reminded me of. And that's and that's exactly what it is, right? Like you know, the question is who's Portland, right? Yeah. Who's queer DC? Who's queer? Who's queer Chicago? Um, yeah, there's, you know, DuPont Circle, there's Boys Town, there's, there's, you know, West Hollywood, there's, you know, Hell's Kitchen in New York. Um, you know, for some people, it, it is Blackstones. And, you know, to, to put it in, in an interesting perspective for me, um, we recently lost a member of our community recently. Um, and to think about what mm. it meant to, for people when they found the news of this person that we lost, to come together and come to that place, yep. like that's where I went. That was that was my homing device. I was there to p- provide support and talk with a lot of people. And even though we're not, you know, even though we're doing a memorial service in a, in a different location um, to accommodate all these people that want to come and, and participate and celebrate this person's life, Blackstones is a place people are going to go after because that was also an important place for him. Yeah. Um, and so, you know. The moments when the community do come together, it is a beautiful thing. But again, everyone has their own different relationship and experience to it. Um, and, you know, some that includes even people that are experiencing it sober, right? Um, just because you go to a bar doesn't necessarily mean that a bar is supposed to, you're supposed to drink there. Um, and what one of the things I love to do about my, 
that I love to learn about my work is that that's always been the case. That has always been historically accurate. Bars have always been community centers. They've always been places of political organization. They've always been places for people to, um, you know, engage in these forms of placemaking. And when the police in the early days, when those bars weren't outlawed, would go and raid it and close it down, they would just move to a different building and and, and superimpose those kinds of practices mm. on that space. So there's something really, really like magical about how we're engaging, how queer people do place, how we, how we, yeah. the flavor we give it. And, you know, I wanted to give credit to our people for what they do as opposed to sort of, and I'll put it this way. I think the thing, when I started um, doing my gay neighborhoods research, I was expecting and framing it the way I think a lot of people do, which is thinking about gay neighborhoods in a very homonormative sort of way, right? Um, you know, what does it mean to, to domesticate and have these institutions mm. and, um, you know, participate in these dynamics and to worry about things like housing values and other, and et cetera. Um, it overlooks the fact that there are people that come there that don't live there but feel very connected and attached to those spaces. That there are ways in which the spa the places that, that um, are often anchors of the community can ebb and flow, that they appear and disappear over the course of a night or a week, or they may be reactivated in certain mm. spaces at certain times. Think about pride parades, for example. Um, that there are these really wonderful dynamics that, again, become... Um, that get lost and then someone else will see in a different community and either think of it, if it's a white community, they'll think of it as like a new innovation. Yeah. If it's a black community, think of it as a pathology, right? Mm. Um, and so, again, that's one of the reasons why I picked DC as well and centered and, and, and really tried to integrate those dynamics of what I talk about in the first book um, in the black community because I was like, you may think of it this way, but it really is um, the same kinds of dynamics of placemaking that's happening yeah. um, in the white queer spaces. Um, and that's and that's really exciting. And so that's something I'm really hoping to bring out in the second project even more um, in terms of Portland. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to close, um, you, you mentioned in your music trying to do cross-generational mm -hmm. history queer history and, and music. Um, and something that I used to, that changed for me in the, in, in my late twenties was I, I went to Blackstones because I was more comfortable around older men because I could have better conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, because I keep a little bit of abreast of RuPaul drag race or, you know, um, all these new artists that are coming up or, or, um, other things like that, but like sometimes I felt like I would I would, felt self siloed because this, a group of friends would be talking about RuPaul's Drag Race down to like, you know the the um, the the fishnet uh, socks that long socks that they were wearing. I don't know if that's the correct term, <laughs> but um, and and I would find myself like losing the conversation. I was just like, I don't know what's going on, so I'm just gonna like stare off into space. Mm. But you know as black zones has changed and it's become very mixed, I have felt the older men feel like they've been swept aside. Mm -hmm. And, and granted in the day we live in, it's not appropriate to not have consent. Mm -hmm. Right. Per, like that's the, the bright line rule. But um, in terms of, what I sometimes see is, is young men just reporting these old men right off the bat. Yeah. Um, where, whereas for me, I kind of understood that in their day when they were young, going out to the bars, there wasn't, when there wasn't any clear spaces, what, what I sort of, the thinking that I, I was having was, well, men at the time, gay men couldn't just go, out and just verbally say I'm gay and I want to date you or I want to take you home in that vocal way we, we sometimes do now. Mm -hmm. um, and so for them it's about all about, I think how they expressed themselves, how they dressed and physical touch. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so for me it's like they're leaning on their way of how they created career spaces, which was uh, less verbal and less, you know, about words and more about, bodies and touch and and expression and for me that was how i was like well yeah these older men are a little handsies but uh, it, if they do it 
more than three times in a row, I'll, I'll have a problem with it. But, you know, oftentimes I'll just, if, if they put a hand on, you know, my side or something, I'll, just, I'll take it and I'll just be like, sorry, like, let's just have a conversation. But uh, I feel like there's a skip that that doesn't even happen. I mean, Lord, a lot of things that don't happen anymore. I think, you know, your comment is, is really germane because I think there's even moments when people, um, especially younger people, if someone, I think across the board actually, when someone talks to you, people automatically just assume it is sexual interest, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that's the product of the awkwardness that I think we've sort of come in the age of all of these apps and everything else where, again, again it's about sex. It's not about connection. Yeah. And one of the things I like about some of the older gentlemen that I spend time talking to when doing my work um, and even sitting at the bar is the fact that they actually, you know, m- many of them, now, now there's a couple there of exceptions, mm-hmm. there's exceptions to everything, yep. but they are people that are really just wanting to talk. They want to tell a story. They want their yep. story to be heard. They want again, to sort of make sense of, of, of the changes that are happening. Um, you know, I have the benefit of being what I refer to as a career gay, right? Like, I write and study and yeah. teach, um, you know, LGBT topics. I keep abreast of everything that comes out that is related to LGBT things and issues, whether it's political, whether it's Ru- RuPaul's Drag Race, whether it's, you know, all the other franchises of, of, of drag that's coming out and emerging, whether it's, you know, reading out and advocate and all those other kinds of things. Um, you know, it's, it's a shame that we don't have just people wanting to have conversation mm-hmm. for the sake of conversation. And I think one of the things that people, one of the reasons why people, I think, also sort of say that bars are dying, not only because they're closing, and that's a different conversation for a different day, it has a lot to do with the fact that, again, people expect to come here and find and meet mm. the, you know, sexual partner, romantic partner. And Which it doesn't makes it a anymore. competition with everyone else. It does. Yeah. It doesn't make it, it, that's not what people are going there for. Nowadays, people go with their friends. Yeah. And oftentimes, people think of it as a failure, right, because you might find someone attractive and you feel reticent to approach them. I remember, and I still see this, people on Grindr talking to someone that is are as close to each other as you and I are right now. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it, it, it is because we are become this sort of, you know, I think there are these moments of siloing within the space. Mm-hmm. Um unless you are someone who can move through it, right, pretty fluidly. There's a couple people that, that have become kind of like, you know, keynoters in this space. I guess I've become one of them, um, especially when I've started playing the music. Um, it, it is, it's unfortunate that we don't have that kind of connection to be able to strike up a gen, like a mm. common conversation. And that's gotten even worse, I think, post-pandemic. I think we've become very socially awkward people mm, yeah. um, as a result of the, the quarantining and, you know, the, 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 the different kinds of technologies that we have to rely on. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I love about being at Blackstones is sitting and having, striking up a conversation um, with patrons and... It is, I mean, it is lovely. I learned so much. And it is, you know, again, if you give that opportunity, right, that's how you become part of the community. You you, you meet people, you learn that with them, and you and you grow, mm-hmm. right, um, as um, a person. And, and it helps deepen, I think, the value of um, a place like that, right, and an appreciation for it more than I think, you know, these apps do. That those apps are not community, right? Yeah, the community is people coming together, um, and so, yeah. I think everyone should everyone should try to be more open um, to what possibilities are there. Yeah, and just because you walk in and it's empty doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because it's it's pat doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get lucky. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, it, it you just have to like let go of those expectations and just let the the energy of yeah. the space do what it does yeah yeah and uh i think that's a good note to end on uh theo thanks for joining us uh or joining me on the podcast and um i'm looking forward to um not only the book that's coming out but the two books that you are thinking about um have you come up with titles for those yet not yet <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think about, about one for maine as i'm getting yeah. ready for proposals but but you know keep your eyes open for those things um but thank you for having me on it's been i always love conversations with you and I hope I hopefully something that I said over the course of this um our our conversation actually 
made sense. <laughs> no, it did. And I, I hope people uh, in Portland listen to it and just think about, you know, what, what I think the underlying theme is creating community and, and being in community, not just, you know, um, treating Black Zones as a, a, a live app. <laughs> well, and, and, and this is the best way I can conclude, and I think this is what guys my research. It's We have the expectation that these spaces are supposed to be doing things for us. Mm. And the reality is we are our own placemakers. Yep. So it's not about what you should take out of it, but what you yep. also put into it. On that note, don't ask what the queer community or black zones or the, the LGBTQ community can do for you. Ask what you can do for the community. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got to be back for the dead. JFK. No, I'm kidding. Um, JFK. Yes. Um, that's a good track, dude. Hello from the other side. What a wonderful episode and interview with my good friend Theo. I learned quite a bit and I I love engaging in conversations with Theo because of how much we can talk about community, placemaking, identity, and and growing up and, and, and growing into ourselves. And so I hope you felt the same. And please share this episode with someone that, at least someone, at least one person that you think would benefit from hearing this. And as always, like, subscribe, follow, whichever action you need to take uh, to keep uh, abreast and and updated on this podcast. And always, please uh, leave a review and also interact in the Q&A. If you're on Spotify, leave some comments and feedback. Thanks for tuning in and please tune in for the next episode whenever I come up with it.